Welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I am your host, Allison R. Brown. On February 5th of this year, 2017, Trayvon Martin would have turned 22 years old. That did not happen, could not happen, because Trayvon was shot and killed by vigilante George Zimmerman on February 26th, 2012. Trayvon's death was the kindling that spread burning embers of a movement for justice, and the movement for Black lives came to be. People protested, social media was abuzz, policy experts were in deep debate and discussion, and the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, or CBMA, was taking stock of it all, leading discussions, engaging with policymakers, researchers, media, and most importantly, with young men themselves, about how to change America's toxic narrative about Black men and boys. With me today is a friend of mine, Rashid Shabazz. VP of Communications for Campaign for Black Male Achievement. He's here to talk about his work and the work yet left to do for black men and boys. Welcome to Schoolhouse, Rashid. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Allison, for having me. Uh, really excited to be on your program today. So tell me, Rashid, what is the Campaign for Black Male Achievement? The Campaign for Black Male Achievement, uh, in a nutshell, it's a national membership network that seeks to ensure the growth, sustainability, impact of leaders and organizations committed to improving life outcomes of black men and boys. And our network includes close to 4,800 individuals and over 2,600 organizations throughout the country. We were part of the Open Society Foundations. We were an initiative that was launched in 2008 as part of the Open Society Foundations under the leadership and currently still under the leadership of our CEO, Sean Dove. Uh, at the time of the launch of the organization, the idea basically or the question at the front of the foundation was whether or not there was a need for an investment in black men and boys. And the question was really wedded to ongoing investments that the foundation had been making around criminal justice reform. So it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek conversation, which was the elephant in the room was the fact that we were invested in black men and boys, but through a lens of criminal justice reform mm-hmm. that they hadn't really spoken of the fact that they were invested in black men and boys, but the impact that the criminal justice system has had on incarceration of black and brown people, uh, both men and women. The campaign for black men achievement came out of a conversation that was led at the time by program officer uh, Alvin Starks, as well as board members on uh, Jeff Canada and Lonnie Grenier, who were pushing the foundation to move beyond the lens of just a criminal justice training, but to think about how could we have a conversation about black men and boys that was broader and, start, and starting at the front end of the problem of how this society frames and the way we're perceived, but also thinking about the economic, educational and the other barriers that have been in place that prevent black men and boys and also black women and girls from reaching and attaining their greatness in this society. And so the campaign for black male achievement was launched in 2008 with Sean Dove. I came on in 2009 as a program officer. And in 2015, we just celebrated actually last month our two-year anniversary of spinning off mm-hmm. from the Open Society Foundation, the foundation, the Open Society Foundation of the history of spinning off programs and projects that they feel have a value beyond 
the foundation itself and can actually have proven to be successful in its work. And so the foundation made a decision along with Sean and the rest of the team that it was time for us to spin off and become an independent entity to allow us to do the work in a more on-the-ground, um, hands-on manner, which we've been doing for two years. And it's been, um, it's been great to be able to have the opportunity to work more closely with community members and to also to help build out the work in a more concrete and deliberate way outside the walls of the foundation. Well, happy anniversary to you all. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that, that time went very fast. At the beginning, I mentioned Trayvon Martin, but the list is long of Black men who've been killed by state-sanctioned violence, uh, Philando Castile and Walter Scott, Eric Garner, Michael Brown. When you think about the young men and the boys, the children who've died at the hands of the state, at at the hands of, of vigilantes who are acting in the interests of the state, in certain situations. When you talk about narrative and what we think and perceive of Black men and boys, what is the narrative that we hear today? It's interesting because the first thought I have when you mentioned Trayvon, the first person I think of is Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. And I think about this long history of systemic violence against Black bodies in our society and how there's a long history of using violence to both disempower and through the use of violence and fear, a community that has the potential and has the aspiration of being equal citizens and to actually tap into the justice and freedom that are entitled to all citizens in this country. And I think for African Americans, for the black community specifically, violence has been state sanctioned mm-hmm. to either prevent that or to retarded in some way. So when you think of Black Wall Street, you think of Emmett Till, you think of all these areas where violence was used to pull us back, um, similar to the post-Reconstruction era. And I think Tanahasi Coates writes about this very eloquently. He mm-hmm. talks about the ways in which um, individuals in Chicago weren't able to attain because of housing and redlining and all the different things that are not benefits for us, but are given to other communities. I think of that first because when I think about Trayvon, I think about he embodies that history that is spoken and unspoken. And the beauty and the the bitterness of the moment for us is that with social media, with the emergence of artists such as Jaceli X, who vocalized the death and, and put into song the murder of Trayvon. You know, Lil Trayvon was rapping his hometown, D Wade and LeBron. He had just came up from Miami to see if daddy, who knew such a great weekend, went in badly in a place where you move because it's safe for your family. But some people have an in-grown hate for your family. We had a moment here in our work where that history was brought to life in a different in way. That lynching, that public lynching of Emmett Till became the standing ground of the individual who thought and took it upon himself to take the life of a young child who was just becoming a man, to take his life and to choose to say, your life, I have control over, I can 
use violence to take your life away from you mm-hmm. and to tell you what position in society you should be in, that you don't belong in this neighborhood, even though you actually live in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You don't have a right to wear a hoodie, even though there's no law saying you can't or should wear certain clothing. And so I think about that. And I think about the history and the anniversary of this moment of, as you mentioned, you know, Trayvon would have been 22. You know, his death now is going on four years since 2012 mm-hmm. when the movement began. And then out of that, as you mentioned, emerged this movement for Black Lives, this love letter that Alicia Carson and others put out mm-hmm. to say that, like, at this moment, while we're grieving the death of Black men and Black women and Black children, this is actually the moment where we need to embrace ourselves. And what we also know is true, which is we're thriving, we're surviving, we're resilient, mm-hmm. and we're loving. And through that love, we can actually overcome. And I think when I see Sabrina Fulton and Tracy mm-hmm. Martin, uh, Trayvon's parents stepping out now and speaking on a political level and using the death of their son as an opportunity to mobilize and to support this current generation of movement. Mm-hmm. I think about that same moment that Emmett Till, Mabel Till, did for Emmett Till when she opened the coffin mm-hmm. and she told people to come and look and see what they had done to her son and no longer could it be in that this atrocity was happening to black men, particularly at that time of lynch and black women. But at this moment, you know, Trayvon's parents did the same day and put themselves in a position as have other parents to say that we're going to take the lid off the coffin, we're going to take the lid mm-hmm. off of this, and social media has done that for us as well. And so we, we're in this moment, which is actually part of a larger history of movement of civil rights and human rights for black people in this country. And so we're just, again, part of that continuation. I'm glad to see that the fervor is at the highest level it has been in decades. And I think it's an opportunity for us to continue to push for our freedom and our liberation. Rashid, what do you make of the notion of safety and danger when it comes to Black communities. So, you know, it it feels to me like the line of inquiry, just to take the Trayvon Martin example, and when George Zimmerman puts out there that he felt unsafe, then the line of inquiry is not interrupted with common sense. It just stops at that point. And the kind of broad beliefs then go with him in that direction to say, yes, of course, he felt unsafe. And the because that's there is because he was confronted by this uh, dangerous person who was a black man, when in fact, this was a black child who was at home and who himself was in danger. How is narrative about really making sure that the, the ways in which safety and danger have been inverted for black community are, are put together again in the right ways? The challenge, though, around perception change is a longer history that goes back to uh, beyond the history of the start of this nation. But when you think about the start of this nation, it was intended for or they needed to create the narrative of the dehumanization of black people to authorize and to legitimize and legalize the enslavement of African people. And so that dehumanization, that narrative, that sense of otherness and that sense of subhumanness 
that oddly we know as people of color, as black people know to be untrue, but those narratives that we have been all taught, despite race, despite gender, have all shaped us into very specific uh, ways. And so basically it's just this idea that so I started there again because I think it's that history of the challenge that we face and changing narrative of over 500 years of image making, 500 years of narrative telling that has been inaccurate and untrue. So how do you unravel that? You know, the George Zimmerman of the world, the individuals who I would say, you know, it, it's in some ways and when we think about explicit bias, we think about it from this idea that in the subconsciousness of all of us, we have particular biases that inform how we interact in the real world consciously or unconsciously. And I think for young black men, the cues are if you're wearing saggy pants, if you're wearing a hoodie, but even beyond clothing, simply mm-hmm. if you are black, you can be killed and you are a threat. And I think for Trayvon, in the mind of George Zimmerman, he rationalized or sub-rationalized or implicit bias, whatever, mm-hmm. or simply his own racial beliefs actually drove him to dehumanize and feel and see the threat in Trayvon. And I think that it was not a fair legitimizing of, of that, but I think the reality is that's just how society has framed black people. And so for us to change that, we began to work thinking about, okay, maybe we could build empathy. Maybe we could put out images that counter the images that people have have sought. And I think to some degree, we have been able to reach those who probably on the fence or those that were already aligned with us. But we have wrestled, those of us who do culture change work, those of us who do narrative change work, have been, in this recent election and, and even before that, had come to the conclusion that empathy alone is not going to save us, that trying to change narrative to reach audiences that have already determined that we are subhuman or a threat will not be the answer. So for us, it's become more a question about reaffirming our humanity reaffirming within the community the challenges that we're facing and thinking about how we shift narrative to empower ourselves, to drive a narrative love, self-love, self-care, self-empowerment, and then tied to that, actually driving in conversation with others who are in particular positions of power, such as our partners of color of change, mm-hmm. who's doing amazing work. How do we drive a conversation to shift this course in the media and in larger corporations that drive content change, how do we engage with them to actually move the conversation and focus on that level of the power brokers who actually understand the conversation and if given the right tools and the right information, may actually move in a very particular way. And I think about the work that we were supporting with Color Change during Trayvon Martin and focusing on Alec and the Stand Your Ground laws and or shoot to kill laws. The basic idea there was that we started targeting companies that were 
committing to Alley that will also, you know, traditional organizations that have been supporting or look to our community for funding and, and resource or dollars. So Coca-Cola or others. And so targeting those companies and what Color Change did, supporting that work, the campaign for Black Male Achievement was supporting that at the time we were at the foundation. Those are the things that we were thinking about when we think about those ideas around perception is that it can't no longer just simply be about empathy and building empathy. It has to be about restoring a sense of self-worth and value that we as Black people feel we are entitled to and have. Speaking of media and corporate, there were and have been lots of stakeholders that the Campaign for Black Male Achievement has engaged with over the years. And um, I would have to imagine one of the most powerful that you all have been talking to, or certainly were talking to, was the White House and President Obama and his launch of My Brother's Keeper. The CBMA, the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, was instrumental at bringing that about. Will you share a bit about the role that CBMA played in the birth of what we know as My Brother's Keeper? The My Brother's Keeper story is actually intersect with Trayvon Martin because there was a period after the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the summer of 2013 where the president made an impromptu uh, speech on the verdict. And in that speech, you know, a year prior, when the movement began to arise around Trayvon's death, the president said, you know, you know, Trayvon could have been my son. Mm-hmm. In 2013, when the acquittal came down and there was a lot of movement and, and protests beginning to emerge as well, the president at that time made a different kind of statement. When Trayvon Martin was first shot, uh, I said that this could have been my son. Another way of saying that is Trayvon Martin could have been me. And at that time for the president to do that, it drove Sean Dove, who I mentioned the CEO mm-hmm. for the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, myself and the Society Foundations to think about how could we take the lessons that we have been learning, the partnerships that we have been building through philanthropy with the California Endowment, the Executive Alliance, and others, how could we take that that vehicle of information, tools, knowledge, and experiences and bring that to the White House? And so subsequently, after the president's announcement, the White House reached out to uh, Sean and to CBMA to meet. And we met with some staff members at the time with, with the introduction of Joshua DeVoy, who's with Values Partnership mm-hmm. and who was formerly with the White House. And we met and we talked about the work of the campaign. And it was through that initial conversation and subsequent conversations with other foundations that the president made the decision that in 2014 he would launch My Brother's Keeper. He announced it in State of the Union address in January 2014 that he was launching this initiative, My Brother's Keeper. And the idea was to support Black and Latino males through public-private partnerships that would surround them with the resources and tools to ensure that their life outcomes are positive life outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so the Campaign for Black Male Achievement was a model for My Brother's Keeper in ways. It was a catalyst and a partner with philanthropy to help bring philanthropy to the table. And with the leadership of Sean and, and the team, 
it was an opportunity for us to elevate the best practices and models and leaders that had been doing this work for a long time. And, and there was also a piece that Joshua and the boys had written for the Daily Beast called The Fight for Black Men. And in that piece, he captured early on a lot of the programs that the president eventually looked to uh, when he made his statement in the State of the Union address about there are programs out here doing this work. And then also during that time when he, he talked about Trayvon. And so it was at that moment that the Campaign for Black Male Achievement was able to provide the tools and experiences and, and the partnership with Open Society Foundations to ensure that the president had a model to look to to be able to say it's worth us taking a step in this direction and committing federal as well as corporate and partnership resources to launch My Brother's Keeper, which is now part of his ongoing work now as he's transitioned out of being president, uh, My Brother's Keeper Alliance and the work that he'll continue to be doing to commit to boys and young men of color. When you think about the current administration under President Trump, is there anything that My Brother's Keeper was really indicative of a federal government that was making efforts to identify across agencies existing data, resources, information, activities within the government that were impacting on boys and men of color that could be aligned with one another to bring those pieces together for alignment and retooling if need be. It was part of an overall sentiment of we have to make sure that the federal government is doing all that it can to be supportive of boys and men of color, to be out of the way of their genius and to dismantle federal barriers to opportunity and to really make sure that we are elevating as federal government, that we're elevating their voices and we're supporting their work. What worries, concerns, fears, or hopes do you have in the current administration? I go back to the conversation we were having, and I think this is all part of an ongoing thread. It's around perception. I think the communication and the narrative that the Obama administration had was what we describe as an asset-based narrative. They saw the potential, they saw the opportunity, and they saw the promise that is in the black community and communities of color. And their policies were shaped by that possibility and that promise, whether you look at their stance on criminal justice reform, their their stance on around drug reform issues, wherever you see the Obama administration standing out, even on education and civil rights, they were looking at from the potentiality of these are individuals who are assets to our community. How do we maximize those assets? Mm -hmm. The unfortunate language that's come out from the current administration has, and what began during the election season, was a narrative of Black people as problems, Mm -hmm. Black people as broken, and that Black people are dysfunctional. And I think that type of narrative drives a law and order narrative. Mm -hmm. It drives a narrative that says that we need to fix somebody Mm -hmm. rather than work with somebody. It drives a narrative that we need to go in with the feds into Chicago and stop something rather than thinking about how we're thinking about what to stop. But it's, it's thinking about it from these people are broken, these people need fixing, and the best way to fix them is to lock them up 
to jail them. And that's the language I'm hearing from the current administration. Mm -hmm. I have not seen an administration that's talked about these are opportunities to build across fences and allies. And they're surrounding themselves with individuals who hold those same perceptions, Mm -hmm. even if they're part of the community, of the community. So they see the community as broken, as needing assistance, as needing, but not really looking at it from the fact that the promise that is within the community needs to be affirmed by the fact that the solutions and answers are in the community itself and that that's where the answers will be to be able to address the ongoing systemic issues that are challenging us from education, from criminal justice reform, from violence in the community, whatever the issues that we've identified and that need to be addressed and that my brother's keeper and the Obama administration were trying to tackle. I think there is a sense that this administration is not guiding the language right yet on how they need to see and frame our community. And I don't know if they will get it right. And so I think that's why it's important for us to resist, for us to protest, for us to organize, for us to do all these different things. You know, in describing the work of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, you mentioned that women and girls are part of the overall construct of justice, too. And it's important that the Campaign for Black Male Achievement is doing what it does because of the gender-specific ways in which we as people experience the myth of white supremacy and the structures that have been built around that myth. And so just share a bit about the unique experiences of Black boys and men different from what Black women and girls experience in the system of white supremacy. I actually like to start less on the differences and actually focus on similarities. You know, mm-hmm. black women and girls and black men and boys, we are compared to our peer groups of other ethnicities at the bottom of every indicator. So we share that in common. We're at the bottom of the indicators when it comes to suspension. We're at the bottom of indicators when it comes to our health. We're at the bottom of indicators when it comes to economic attainment and asset building and wealth. And so I think we share in common the fact that since our coming here to be sure, our community has been broken and, and robbed of the ability to actually to build community in ways that are reflective of what we think is healthy for us. And so I think when I think about black men and boys, there are unique issues. And I think the most unique issue where I think we have opportunity and promise at this moment is the fact that while there are differences the thing that defines us as men, re-examining the idea of masculinity, mm-hmm. re-examining what the roles that gender play at this moment, that I think a focus around black men and boys has brought to the surface, a focus around black women and girls and trans youth have brought to the surface and LGBTQ identified youth have brought to the surface. All these conversations have brought to the surface the need to interrogate and re-interrogate what we mean by gender. And I think that's what the opportunity has allowed us. And so when I think about these issues and I think about the differences, there are unique differences based on targeting and based on gender. But I wouldn't use that to suggest that there isn't a need for us to think beyond gender mm-hmm. and to think about how we move beyond those those different uh, spaces. Because I think of the work of Monique Morris and the high 
the importance of focusing on the increased suspension of black girls in schools. And I think about the reality that that focus doesn't take away from the fact that that is happening to black boys. And if anything, if it's happening both to both our sons and our daughters, our future leaders, then the reality to me is that there's something that binds them uniquely together, mm-hmm. and I think it's race. And I think that the combination of race and gender in our analysis needs to be furthered in our work. And I think that you can't decouple it. And I think you also need to think about it from the standpoint of class mm-hmm. and how those things kind of work together in this emergence of how we're continually being either pitted against each other as we do this work or how we're being marginalized from each other and how we marginalize isolate ourselves. But I think at this moment, we have a unique opportunity to think about how do we bridge and if we can reach across the aisle with each other thinking about how we create that change and opportunity at this time where there's so much division, I think there's an opportunity for us to have broader conversations. But there are unique challenges that face those populations. For black men and boys, um, we see that there are unique challenges as it relates to employment and the rates of employment. Uh, we know that in some communities, we see 50% unemployment rates uh, for youth, and that's across the board. But as I was mentioning, we see the same for black women and girls. But what's unique in those situations, and I think the other unique piece of this work, and this is like a third rail conversation, mm-hmm. is the conversation around fatherhood and responsible fatherhood and the absence or the lack of black males in the home. But then that means if they're not in the home, the reality is that black women are in the home. And for me, that has been an opportunity for us to really think about, well, if black men are in the home, one solution is, yes, reconnecting fathers to their families. The other solution that raises for me is it means that black men and boys can stand for equal wage because if black women are bringing home the wages, if they're the ones who are the breadwinner, if they're the ones working day in and day out and they're single parents, it would be a good advocacy for our organization, for our work to stand for equal pay, for example, mm-hmm. because those lives of those young black boys, those young black girls are being touched day in and day out by women who are getting 50% less of the dollar or 66 cents of the dollar compared to their white women's counterparts. And so I think that's how I think about the work is, is this continuity and this holistic approach to thinking about, yeah, there are these unique differences, but let's look at the similarities. Let's look at the overlaps and thinking about how all of our children are being affected and a targeted focus on black men and boys only allows us to look at and think about solutions that unpackage the history of systemic white supremacist policies that have been in place, but allows us to think broadly about how other community members are affected as well. And I think that's where the intersectionality of black men and boys and black women and girls intersect. Thank you. I really appreciate that framing of the work and the issues as part of a continuum all connected, of course, to each other and disrupting that historical cycle that allows for the manifestations of racism to exist for Black boys and Black girls is really at the core of the work that I know you all are doing and that 
so many of your partners are doing as well. And when I think about what's happening in classrooms, it really is about fear and control and the ways in which Black boys are in the classroom are feared and so punished based on that fear. And Black girls are punished, and this is, of course, an overgeneralization, but Black girls are punished for not comporting with the white mainstream notion of what feminine is. Yeah. You know, so the control of their bodies and the way that they present is where discipline then emanates from. So they sit in classrooms together, Black boys and Black girls, and they experience racism together and really disrupting the, the historical realities and the historical and generational memory, it's important to understand where that comes from and how how we can overcome in really presenting their humanity, overcome that sense of fear and the need for control of who they are and, and what they should be as defined by some standard that isn't necessarily who they are. Yeah, I appreciate what you're saying, too, because... And I'm, you raise an important point that I think, like, let's take the classroom example, or even let's take it into the real world. Mm-hmm. If you put a black boy, you put a, a black girl in the classroom, and say, from a physical standpoint, the black boy, because of a physical standpoint, may seem threatening. Mm-hmm. But when a black girl speaks up, and she's not being quote unquote feminine, mm-hmm. or she's acting out in some way, quote unquote, or she's like Sandra Bland, quote unquote, mm-hmm. then it authorizes the state. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that surprises me that it quickly moves from them being girls and being feminine mm-hmm. to violence can be used against them in yes. any means similar to any other black male body or otherwise. And to me, that's the unique aspect is that how quickly it shifts from these are girls, mm-hmm. these are feminine bodies, however we define it, but then quickly the violence that's placed upon it raises another question about the violence towards women in our society and how mm-hmm. quickly we move to quiet them, quote unquote, mm-hmm. or to put them in a position where they can't or they should stay quiet. Mm-hmm. And it's in our silence, as Audrey Lord says, it's in our silence and inability to transform that language into protest yeah. that they control us and to your point around fear. So I appreciate you raising that because I think that's the biggest threat to them is that we call them out, that we do stand up, that we have a fire mm-hmm. in us. And mm-hmm. young people in particular carry that fire in yeah. them that they know something is not right, whether it's coming out the right way or the wrong way, it's got to come out. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're 100% right. I appreciate that. Rashid Shabazz is the Vice President of Communications at the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. Rashid, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being on Schoolhouse today. Thank you so much as well. And I just wanted to uh, thank you and congratulate you all on the great work. And the last thing I wanted to add is we just came off of celebrating in partnership with our partner organization, Black House for Human Rights, uh, our second annual MLK Now, um, which is an event that we engage civil rights leaders of the past through language and their speeches being reperformed or performed by celebrities. And this year in particular, we were very deliberate to lift up, you know, women's voices and, and really engage around that. But 
you know, the unique thing last year was like Oscar so white, you know, this year is <laughs> Oscar so black. And one of the, and we talk about classrooms and girls, you know, one mm-hmm. of the things that really stuck me this Oscar season is just how I didn't know about the story of Penny Figures yes. and just how much rich history there is. And I think to the whole point around perception and the work that the campaign is trying to do is how do we continue to lift up narratives? that have been unheard? How do we continue to lift up the assets of our community? And that's not to say there aren't challenges in our community, but how do we move beyond being boxed in by the extremes, either having to be the Obama or the thug? Yeah. Um, how do we become all whole humans? And so I appreciate that the work that you're doing, Allison, um, and for this program, and just want to thank you for the opportunity to, to speak on behalf of the campaign for Black Achievement and Sean and, and all the team. So thank you. Absolutely. And how can folks find you if they want more information about the campaign for Black Male Achievement? Well, we're actually going to be launching a new site this month, and they can follow us at www.blackmaleachievement.org. The new site will launch at the end of this month. Um, the old site is still up. But the new site will be a home and destination for our members, but also for the broader community to engage with us. And we're hoping that it will be a hub for the issues and concerns of black men and boys and for this country and also globally. Thank you so much, Rashid. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at CJS Fund. Dot org. Have a wonderful week.